is producer Josh's film school. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Game over, man. It's game over. Hello and welcome to another edition of producer Josh's film school. I am the titular producer, producer Josh, that is, serving as host for this cinematic journey through the world of Dune. That's right. On this episode, we're going to cover... The original David Lynch Dune from the 1980s. Maybe you didn't even know it was a movie that existed to the two Dune movies that have come out this decade. uh, Both of those starring the uh, very masculine Timothy Chalamet and uh, Zendaya. Who I Hot take right off the bat. We're like 30 seconds into this. I'll give you a hot take. I think Zendaya could whip Timothy Chalamet's ass. We're already off and running. I love that. Diving right in to the deep end. Follow me on uh, Twitter at producer underscore Josh. Give me your movie takes. You can see my movie reviews there. Also, that's the best way to stay up to date on the pod. I'll probably be sending out uh, the links to the episodes uh, via there more than anywhere else on Instagram at Josh Odson. Uh, It's just movie reviews. There's no pics of my dog. There's no pics of my kid. There's no, uh, uh, ooh, I saw this cool statue downtown. None of that. It's just a movie poster and a review. You know, uh, lately, although I have been pushing out clips from uh, the Connor Happer show in in the stories section. I I don't know how you guys consume Instagram. Everybody consumes social media differently. I don't know how to find you. I'm an old man, and uh, the new world is very, very scary to me. So thank you for following me there before we get into uh, all the sci-fi movies we have to cover today we'll do a quick little bit of uh, what i'm watching three new movies uh, newish movies they, they've all come out this year maybe you've seen them too maybe you haven't had haven't had a chance to uh, recap them here on the pod with you fine folks uh, we'll start with mean girls the reboot musical version of the Lindsay Lohan classic. You don't get to say that phrase often. The Lindsay Lohan classic. Uh, mean Girls. This is a mixed bag, this one. Um, some of it I like. Some of it, some of the changes I thought were very well done. Um, but the thing is, it's a musical. And I don't, there's not one song where I'm like, I would listen to that in the car. There's, there's not one song that I was like, really really impressed with which actually kind of stunned me because i thought this was a fairly successful broadway musical and then i sat down in the theater and i was like wait a minute i have not heard one single song from this musical what am i about to watch and and sure enough uh i i'm not gonna say i hated it i didn't like it it was like a near miss for me i'm gonna go ahead and give it two 
out of five stars for the reboot musical version of Mean Girls. Not a total loss by any means. Um, If you're a big fan of the original movie, I would actually recommend you check it out. It's just kind of neat to see it uh, through a different lens. We'll talk about this movie more when we talk about the original Mean Girls. We'll do that here later in the spring. The uh, I think it's the 20th anniversary. Got to be 20th anniversary of that movie is coming up in uh, just a matter of weeks. So we'll churn out a Mean Girls tribute episode that time. Um, a, a movie the internet is talking about, and that's not always a good thing. As they say, don't ever be the main character on Twitter. This movie was the main character on Twitter for a few days. Madam Webb starring noted thespian Dakota Johnson. Um, This movie is a mess. I guarantee this will be in my bottom 10 of the year. I guarantee this will lead the pack in terms of Razzie nominations for next year. Uh, Well, there is a Winnie the Pooh 2 coming out this year, so maybe I should pump the brakes on the Razzie nomination. But this is this is a high-profile, not a flop, bomb starring Dakota Johnson as a character that is um, Spider-Man adjacent. You know, this is, uh, this is in the Sony family of Spider-Man movies along with uh, Venom, Morbius. It makes Morbius look like The Godfather Part 2, for crying out loud. Um, the writing is atrocious. The editing is even worse. There's a scene where Dakota Johnson goes to check on someone in the ambulance and Dakota Johnson is the one in the ambulance. So, um, that's the type of just fine craftsmanship we're talking about when we're critiquing Madam Webb. Adam Scott, um, a funny guy, uh, Ben in uh, Parks and Rec, who we all know and love is in this movie. He plays... A character by the name of Ben Parker. That's right. Uncle Ben. It took me longer than I really want to admit to everyone to admit that. Like, wait, that's Uncle Ben. Because, like, the, the the timing, I think this movie takes place in, like, 2003, and it's a young Ben Parker. And I'm like, that. it just doesn't add up. The, the, the math, the timeline doesn't add up. But... I guess maybe it does add up to the the Marvel movies, but when I think of like, okay, this is where this is this is how you know I'm an old man. When we are doing a timeline of Spider-Man movies, and you're trying to get a prequel to Spider-Man to line up to the uh, the, the movies, I don't immediately go to the MCU. I immediately go to the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. Took me a long time to figure out what we're doing. No, they're trying to sync it up to the MCU Spider-Man movies. Yeah, those are good. Those are good movies. Yeah, that's a good move to do. It didn't even dawn on me that that's what we're doing because I'm an old man and I'm an idiot. Um, But terrible movie. Avoid like the plague. Unless it's not even so bad it's good. But it is so bad that maybe maybe if you're morbidly curious you should check it out but you got to know going in this is a tire fire um i believe i gave it 1 star out of 5 and then finally a uh, movie dilla date night with the wifey uh, had a had a fun time watching argyle although it is not a great movie it can be fun if you let it be 
Henry Cavill stars as a fictitious spy, uh, the star of novels written by Bryce Dallas Howard's character. She gets a little bit of writer's block writing the latest installment. So she goes to visit her mother on a train and she discovers that what she writes in her spy novels comes true. Great, great premise. This is from the director of the Kingsman series of movies. I'm sorry, I, I didn't I didn't do Argyle prep. I don't have his name in front of me, but uh, it's from the director of the Kingsman series. It has a similar vibe, not quite as violent or vulgar as that franchise is, but um, it, it hits it hits the mark quite a few times. Not consistently enough for me to be like, oh, you got to go out and see this. But if it's on a streaming service somewhere that you're already paying for, I would definitely recommend to check it out. Um, it, it spoiler alert, I guess, for Argyle. Do we do we care about this? Um, it tries to tie itself in to the Kingsman franchise at the end. I don't know where they go from there, but he's got a vision, and I appreciate that. Um, uh, two and a half. Out of five for Argyle. Okay, let's dune it up, y'all. We begin in a time known as the 80s. That's right. 1984, directed by David Lynch. This is Dune. We begin with the basics, which means I am tasked with telling you the plot of Dune. It is a movie I've seen three different versions of, and... I don't know how to answer that very, very simple-sounding question. I will read the plot as it is written on the IMDb website. That's right, the Internet Movie Database. Quote, A duke's son leads desert warriors against the Galactic Empire and his father's evil nemesis to free their desert world from the Emperor's rule. I can attest that that is something that happens in the 1984 version of Dune. But there's so much more, so, so much more. I don't even know how to explain it to you. Yes, I understand. That's my job. That's my role here as podcast host. It stars Kyle MacLachlan, who would go on to star in another David Lynch movie, Blue Velvet. I think that's where people probably know him best. Wasn't he on like a like a procedural in the 90s on ABC? Or am I getting him confused? With somebody else. I don't know. He was in Twin Peaks, another David Lynch thing. Uh, IMDb credits him as known for, love the known for section on IMDb, by the way. Portlandia, he's the mayor. Haven't watched a ton of Portlandia. Fred Armisen's hit or miss for me. That's a podcast for another day. So that's Kyle McLaughlin. Virginia Madsen, uh, the star of Candyman. That's right. I called her the star of Candyman, even though she is not, in fact, Candyman. Uh, Patrick Stewart, I don't know, some bum actor who just kind of bounced around for 40 years, did things like Star Trek, ever heard of it? Yeah, if, you, if you're listening to a podcast about Dune, you've probably heard of Star Trek. Uh, again, directed by David Lynch, best known for Twin Peaks, uh, Mulholland Drive brought him a lot of praise. Um, he's known for being a weird cat. That's kind of his thing. The way his movies are, they require a lot of thought, a lot of patience, a lot of concentration. And boy, do you need a lot of concentration to know what the hell is happening in Dune. 
I, I'm going to talk a lot of trash about Dune, but it's I actually don't think it's as bad as people say it is. Um, I if you are able to put your phone down, turn it off, not don't talk a single word in the room that you're watching. Like you have to sit and focus. It is your job to pay attention. Your life depends on it. Kind of pay attention to the movie. You can follow along and it does make a semblance of sense. But at this time, uh, David Lynch has only done two movies, Eraserhead, which is a movie that garnered him a lot of praise out of the gate. It was his feature film debut in 1977. Um, this guy and his girlfriend, they're, they're kind of falling out of love with each other. They're on the outs. Um, they, the, the, the woman gives birth to a child. It is a mutant child, like almost literally a mutant child. And, you know, there's sort of some, some body horror things going on. And then the, 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 the two people who may not love each other anymore have to kind of come together to take care of this again, mutant child. And I mean, it's a mutant child. Like it, 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 it's, it's like shape shifting and it's got like things that are exploding on its body. So I'm, I'm not being derogatory when I use that word. He's done that. That garnered him a lot of acclaim. And uh, a man by the name of Mel Brooks saw that movie and said, hey, I'm doing this movie called The Elephant Man. Would you like to do that? You did some interesting body horror things. The Elephant Man requires that. Um, I kind of need someone that people are going to look at as a, quote, visionary and direct my version of the Elephant Man. So he did, got him a ton of acclaim again. And based on the strength of those two movies, he gets Dune. That's the basics. That's the basics of Dune. Did I help? I don't know. Did I hurt? Probably. Uh, We go from the basics to the numbers. Uh, Once again, we're kind of building a plane in the air. I'll have more uh, intros, production value, uh, if you just bear with me here. A couple of weeks, we go to the Rotten Tomatoes, 37% critics score for David Lynch's Dune. I, I guess technically I should call it Dune or 1984's Dune, but, um, you know, I'm calling it David Lynch's Dune, even though he's disavowed the film. He does not claim it, but it happened, David. It happened. Uh, 65% score from the audience. So the audience has actually liked this a lot more than the critics. It has become a bit of a cult classic, especially uh, with the new versions of the movie. People have found the old version, watched it, and said, hey, you know, this this ain't so bad. Critics' consensus, this truncated adaptation of Frank Herbert's sci-fi masterwork is too dry to work as grand entertainment, but David Lynch's flair for the surreal gives it some spice. See what they did there? Spice. That's a critical thing in the movie Dune. IMDb Our users have given it a 6.3 out of 10. Metacritic users have given it a 41 out of 100. So uh, IMDb has it just above the halfway point. Metacritic has it just below the halfway point. Uh, No cinema score available for this one. They were still kind of a new company when Dune premiered in 1984. Uh, box office numbers for Dune, it grossed $27 million 
on a $40 million budget. So it did not make money. It was not profitable for the studio that made it. It was in theaters for six weekends. That's it. You know, this was the 80s. This was the mid-80s. And they did not let this thing run its course. I mean, it, it, it died by the end of those six weekends, so it wasn't going to do anything more. Um, it debuted at number two opening weekend. Uh, it grossed $6 million that opening weekend, finishing second to a little movie, not not in its first weekend. I think it was its second weekend, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, it grossed $11.5 million that weekend. Yes, it was the second week of release for Beverly Hills Cop, uh, and it towered large over David Lynch's Dune at the box office that very weekend. Like we said, it is based on the 1965 Frank Herbert novel. Uh, it, it, it Everyone is said, like when people talk about the book Dune, they always say, oh, it's unfilmable. That's the word they use, unfilmable. You can't turn it into a movie. You can't turn it into a TV show. My guess is thoughts have changed on that, given the new movies, and just kind of get like, we spent a billion dollars to turn Lord of the Rings into a TV show on Amazon that quite literally no one has ever watched. So I, we can do great things now. We can we can film things that maybe uh, we couldn't before. Before we, we get to the actual... Movie in 1984. Uh, there was a it was a long road to get to uh, the movie that lost out to Beverly Hills Cop opening weekend. Um, attempts to adapt Dune into a movie began in Year of Our Lord 1971. It took 13 years for this to from idea to the silver screen. I mean, again, the book came out in 1965. Ridley Scott. That's right, Ridley Scott, Gladiator, Alien, that Ridley Scott, uh, unsuccessfully tried to bring this uh, to the silver screen in the early 80s. Uh, in 1981, executive producer Dino De Laurentiis hired Lynch as a director. If you've heard that name before, uh, Dino has produced a number of the Halloween movies. That's that's how I know the name Dino De Laurentiis. But then I got married, and uh, my wife is a fabulous cook, elite. I'll, I'll go that far. She's an elite cook. Um, she, not a professional cook, just an elite home cook. She introduced me to the world of Food Network, where a young lady by the name of Jada De Laurentiis has a cooking show, among many, many other talents, and her grandfather is Dino De Laurentiis. So it comes full circle in the Odson house, may, maybe yours as well. Um, he was... He had the rights to produce this movie. He held on to, he had the rights. He had 13 years. Like that was the clock. He bought it and he said, Hey, if you give me 13 years, I'll turn this into a movie. I, he didn't think he would need all 13 years, but he kind of did. Um, <laughs> so we get into the, 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 the road, the production here, even before De Laurentiis in 1971 film producer, Arthur P. Jacobs, He's the guy behind the Planet of the Apes movies, optioned the film rights to the book Dune on agreement to produce the film within nine years. You, What happens is you buy the rights to turn a book into a movie, the clock starts ticking, and generally you get a long runway because 
you're gonna you're gonna strike out a couple times. You're gonna you're gonna tweak that script a number of times. You're gonna find a director. The director's gonna get pissed that it's taking so long. He's gonna opt out. Your star's gonna have scheduling issues. Like it, it takes a lot to get a movie made. So you get a long runway uh, when you buy uh, the the rights to turn a book into a movie. Um, now. Here's the other thing that can happen. You could die before that clock runs out. That's what happened to Arthur P. Jacobs. He died in 1973 uh, while the movie was still in development. So in 1974, those rights come up for sale again. And a man by the name of Jean-Paul Gabon, it would be French, so it would be Gabon, right? Uh, with Alejandro Jodorowsky attached to direct. Uh, Jodorowsky approached contributors, including the progressive rock groups Pink Floyd and Magma for some of the music, uh, Dan O'Bannon for the visual effects, and artists H.R. Geiger, uh, among many others. He was going to get the best musicians, the best set designers to help him out here, and he was going to cast, this was his dream cast, Salvador Dali as the Emperor, Orson Welles as Baron Harakonnen, Mick Jagger as Fade Rauta. Again, if I if I mispronounce any of the characters of Dune's name, don't come at me, nerds. It comes from a place of love, okay? I'm a big, dumb idiot. I'm an old man, as I've said several times. Please, just love me. Udo Kier as uh, Peter uh, DeVries, which would have worked, by the way. Look up Udo Kier in his uh, filmography. You don't know the name. You know the face. He's a great character actor. David Carradine from the Kill Bill movies as Leto Atreides. Uh, Jodorowsky's son uh, as Paul Atreides. And the project was ultimately canceled for several reasons, largely because uh, they could not get the funding to turn this into a movie. Oh, yeah, and the movie was going to be 14 hours long. So, uh, yeah, that probably... Wasn't going to happen. I uh, never reached production, but the work they did significantly impacted other science fiction films. Uh, this this team that was working on turning the book Dune into a movie, they had to storyboard a whole bunch of things. They had to um, create some aliens because there's you know there's maybe not straight up aliens in this movie, but there, there's it's a it would have been a creature feature in, in a lot of ways. So. Uh, the team working on this movie, hey, hey, this isn't a movie anymore. You guys can go elsewhere. As a team, they all say, hey, this Ridley Scott guy, uh, we, we met him. He was going to try and turn this into a movie. He's making a movie called Alien. Why don't we all go help him make that? They go and they make Alien, which is amazing that because they couldn't turn Dune into a movie, Alien got made, which thank you, I guess. Um, a documentary about this failed version of Dune came out in 2013. It's called Jodorowsky's Dune, uh, and it's all about the failed makings of the movie. So back to Dino. In 1976, the Italian purchases the rights to Dune. Uh, the script was 175 pages long. Now, script to movie time, that's about three hours Dino De Laurentiis hires Ridley Scott in 1979 as he's uh, just done with Alien. He's like, hey, this Alien movie you made, getting getting wild praise. Uh, the team that worked on that is has worked on your movie Alien. So he feels it'd be a quick and seamless transition. Yes, 
Sure. Why wouldn't it be? Um, Scott said, okay, but, I mean, the script we have now, it's running three hours. This is two movies. I I can't do this in one movie. Um, So... Dino's like, I don't know if I got the money for that. I, I, I and, and it stalls out. Obviously, Ridley Scott never makes a version of Dune. He moves on to another movie. So the first time he gets hired on the movie, that fails, and he makes Alien. The second time he gets hired to make Dune, it stalls out. He goes on to make another movie called Blade Runner. So because Dune failed so many times, we got Alien and Blade Runner. I don't love the the original Blade Runner, but a lot of people do. You got two bangers thanks to Dune in 1984. So uh, Ridley Scott was interviewed for, um, I don't have the source here, but he said, after seven months, I dropped out of Dune. I also realized it was going to take a lot of work. It was going to take at least two and a half years to turn this into a movie. The script, the production, the editing, it was all going to take two, maybe three years my older brother Frank died of cancer while I was prepping the De Laurentiis version. Frankly, that freaked me out. So I went to Dino and I said, I can't do this and gave the script to him. Now, Dino, he's tried to turn this into a movie a couple of times. He gets sick of it. He hands it to his, ah, forgive me, I don't know the De Laurentiis family tree. He hands it to his sister, I believe. Producer Raffaella De Laurentiis. And if you watch that Jada De Laurentiis cooking show, she often cooks with her, I believe it is her aunt, Aunt Raffi. That's the producer of Dune. She decides, you know what? I've seen two movies from this David Lynch guy. That's the guy. We got to go get that guy to direct our, our movie. Now, around that time, David Lynch had received a number of other offers, including Return of the Jedi. Initially, Lynch said, hey, if we're going to do this, let's do it. I I do appreciate that. Every director attached to this project said some semblance of the phrase, if we're going to do this, we have to do it right. And you can't do it in 90 minutes. You can't do it in two hours. I need two movies. Now, they could have just been going into business for themselves, but also, I think given the 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 source material, people realize like there's a lot going on here. It's going to take multiple movies to tell this story. But obviously, David Lynch did not get that leeway. They said, "Nope, it's got to be one movie." Um, Raffi laid the hammer down, I guess. Virginia Madsen, who was in David Lynch's Dune, she said in 2016, uh, "I signed on for three films, and the producers thought they were going to make Star Wars for grownups, which." Yeah, that makes sense. There's David Lynch's Dune has a ton of A New Hope vibes where, hey, let's make it. It's going to look kind of crappy, but if it's a rousing success, we're going to get more money and we can make the second and the third film look a hell of a lot better. Uh, The rough cut of Dune, uh, without all the effects, ran over four hours long. Lynch's intended cut of the film, as reflected in the seventh draft of the script, I told you, Takes a long time to make a movie. Doesn't normally take seven drafts of the script, though. Uh, It was almost three hours long. So he cuts an hour out of the film. He's like, okay, I got it, guys. It's three hours long. Universal and Rafi De Laurentiis say, you need to cut another 
hour off of this film. We want a two-hour movie. Keep it tight. David Lynch does uh, not like that, but he does it. Uh, he he gives them a movie that ends up running two hours and 17 minutes. He's like, that's the best I can do. And they're like, you know what? That's fine. Thank you for your service, David Lynch. Uh, a television version was aired in 1988 in two parts, totaling 186 minutes. It replaced the opening monologue from Virginia Madsen, which, by the way, has a P.S. at the end of it. It's like, oh, yeah. It literally ends with, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you something. And I don't even remember what it is she adds at the end of the opening monologue. But she says, and I quote, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you something. I, you just, that, that's not good writing. You, you could have just shoehorned it in or done it somewhere else. Like you didn't have to say, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you something. Uh, because it is, again, it's trying to be Star Wars for grownups and it's trying to do an opening crawl, but it says, hey, we can't do an opening crawl because Star Wars did an opening crawl. Everyone's going to know we're trying to mimic Star Wars. So we can't do that. Uh, Lynch, as I said, David Lynch has disavowed this version and even went so far as to remove his name from credits of the television versions of the movie. Uh, he, the, the studio said, eh, you can't really do that, but, uh, you can work under a pseudonym and he picked the pseudonym Judas Booth. Knowing David Lynch, there's probably some significance to that name. I don't have it in front of me. Maybe someone out there knows it. Judas Booth. I have a hunch what he means by using the name Judas, but um, I don't care to comment any further. Uh, when production started, it was anticipated this film launch a franchise, as Virginia Madsen said. They were trying to make Star Wars for grownups. Plans uh, after the release of the original Dune were to make two sequels back to back. They they were so confident that this was going to be a banger. They put a lot of the props into storage uh, and said, hey, we're just going to pull these right back out of storage for Dune 2 and Dune 3. Uh, the star of the movie, uh, Kyle MacLachlan, said he signed a two-film contract and that Lynch had begun working on a screenplay for the second film. Once Dune was released and failed at the box office, all those sequel plans were canceled. That's right. Now, in July of last year, so less than a year ago, a writer by the name of Max Every was doing research for a book, a masterpiece in disarray, David Lynch's Dune. Maybe a better producer would have gotten him on the show for this. Uh, on the first film's influence, he discovered Lynch. Uh, he discovered Lynch's half-completed draft for the second film at California State University. He unearthed it. He discovered it. Uh, he reached out to Lynch for comment in January, just like eight weeks ago. And he responded through a rep that he did recall beginning work on the script, but much like the first film, he just didn't want to comment it. David Lynch, ha he will not discuss it in interviews. He has not discussed it very much publicly, if at all. Like, obviously, he tried to get his name removed from the damn thing. So he this, this isn't a point of pride for him. A lot of directors, years later, will say, you know, we made a movie. It, it it failed. It happens. Like, but uh, I took lessons from that to make all the great movies you know and love from me in my catalog. Um, David Lynch isn't necessarily that way with this. 
Uh, he, he does not love this movie. He did not uh, learn lessons. Now, maybe the lesson he learned is to not do big-budget movies because he hasn't really gone back to something like that. He, he, he stays in his wheelhouse. A lot of times he writes the movies that he directs, and, uh, you know, they're, I, I don't say this disparagingly, they're weird little art house movies. That's what David Lynch does best. That's his wheelhouse. That's where he stays. That's his home. He likes it there. It works for him. And, you know, he's not, he's carved out a nice little career, not just making Twin Peaks related things. Like he, other, th- Blue Velvet is a great, weird little art house movie. Now it's time for one of my favorite bits that we do here. Yeah, that's right. We got bits on this podcast. This bit is called The Best Part. It's where I tell you the best part of the movie that we're talking about. My favorite part of David Lynch's Dune is the hand in the box scene. It it happens pretty early on. Um, It's still at a point where you don't really know what's going on. And... um, the characters' names in this movie, it's a lot like... Okay, let's back up. I equate Dune. When I tell people who don't quite understand Dune, they're like, hey, what's Dune like? It is Star Wars meets Game of Thrones meets The Matrix because it's got the Star Wars, it's got the space thing, it's got the... how Every planet is house of fill-in family name here. That's the Game of Thrones influence. There's... Now, it could just be Star Wars meets Game of Thrones, but I throw in The Matrix because when people think The Matrix, uh, generally they think of the Messiah story where uh, everybody's waiting on the one. Who's the one? Now, Star Wars does the same thing, but when you think Star Wars, you immediately think of space. When you think of The Matrix, I immediately think of like the Messiah story. A lot of people could think of gun violence, but I don't say that negatively. It's not a negative, but that's what you think of. When you think of the Matrix, it's a really tense scene where Kyle McLaughlin has to put his hand in a box and they go, hey, you're human, but this is going to hurt like hell. Your initial uh, reaction is going to be to pull your hand out of the box. Don't pull your hand out of the box. And it's it's a test, basically. And he puts his hand in the box and it feels like uh, the flesh on his hand is melting off. It, it it feels like he's being pierced through his hand. His hand, the skin is melting off, and he, he sits there, and he holds it, and he holds it, and he holds it, and they finally let him go, and he pulls his hand out, and his hand is fine. Nothing has happened to his hand. It was all a mind bleep, if you will, and that's how they know, ooh, maybe he's the one. Uh, so it, it's it's really tense. It's really well done, and it it kind of goes to what David Lynch does best, right? Because it's not this big sci-fi action sequence with a lot of special set dressing and special effects. It's just a guy and a girl standing across from each other, and there's a lot of a lot of facial reaction acting, and uh, you're getting into everybody's head for maybe not the first time in the movie, but one of the first times in the movie, you're seeing different characters' motivations. And and that's what David Lynch does better than 
sci-fi epics. Imagine if David Lynch made Return of the Jedi and made it terribly. And you had these great first two parts and then you had Return of the Jedi, which just sucked. Now, I know we can all picture a bad Star Wars movie at this point in our lives. I know they exist. They're out there. But imagine if Return of the Jedi was bad. What would have happened? Where would we be in this world if Return of the Jedi had been uh, a terrible, terrible flop? Uh, We go to the legacy of Dune. Kind of hard to pinpoint a legacy on a movie that, you know, didn't do so well. It it bombed. Okay, I'll say it. it. David Lynch's Dune bombed. Not much of a legacy, but... And I I think people keep returning to this series, keep trying to want to make it. Uh, You know, uh, I call him Dennis Villanueva. That's not his name, but I call him Dennis Villanueva. There's only one N. He's not of American descent, but I call him Dennis because I'm a big, dumb American. Uh, He he said, you know, he he loves the books. It's the books that keep him coming back. There's like six books in this series, I believe. And and like, that's the thing that keeps people coming back it, it keeps people wanting to try to get this onto the screen because we'll get we'll get into it a little bit later but there are some other franchises that were thought to be unfilmable that were filmed and were quite successful that allowed people to to take a second look at dune and and try and turn that into a franchise Roger Ebert noted film critic my favorite film critic uh, he gave the 1984 version of dune one star out of four and wrote This movie is a real mess, an incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. Yeah, it is. The movie's plot will no doubt mean more to people who've read the book than to those who are walking in cold, you know, like a movie. People generally don't read the book before they read the movie. I think we're a little better at that now, but in 1984, I mean, hey, what's at the movie theater? Okay, this? Okay, I'm in. Oh, this is confusing. Uh, And later, Roger Ebert named it the worst movie of the year on his syndicated television show at the movies with Gene Siskel. Gene Siskel started his review by saying, It's physically ugly. It contains at least a dozen gory gross-out scenes. Some of its special effects are cheap, surprisingly cheap, with a $45 million budget. And its story is confusing beyond belief. In case I haven't made myself clear... I hated watching this film. It was named the worst film of 1984 on the show at the movies. Not a great start. (laughs) Janet Maslin of the New York Times gave it also one star out of five. So I guess that's worse than one star out of four. She said, several of the characters in Dune are psychic, which puts them in unique position of being able to understand what's going on in the movie. She explained that the plot was perilously overloaded, as is everything else about it. Now, that's when we get into the issue with Dune. It, and it is a plot that requires the maximum amount of attention you can give it to follow along. I've, every time I watch this, I, I, I know, okay, I got to put away all the distractions, all the devices. I have to watch it alone. I have to be awake. I can't be even the slightest bit tired or I'm going to doze off during it and I'm going to miss it and I'm not going to know what's going on. 
I've done my absolute best to try and understand what's going on in this movie, and I think I only understand about 15% of it. Now, that's enough to get through. There's enough action sequences. You can kind of, just by how everybody looks, you can kind of tell who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Oh, that handsome man, he must be the good guy. Hey, that guy with bubbling boils all over his face, I'll bet he's the bad guy. Oh, yeah, Sting's in this movie. We haven't really brought that up. Sting's in this movie. He plays a bad guy. He plays a crazy person. Because in 1984, Sting played a really good crazy person. He might have been one in real life, but, you know, he seems litigious. I won't go that far. Uh, Critic and sci-fi fiction writer Harlan Ellison reviewed the film positively. Even back in the 80s, he said, It was a book that should not have been turned into a movie. It was a script that should not have been written for the screen. It was a director that is punching out of his weight class. And yet, the film was made. I don't think that's a positive review, by the way. But um, I don't think you want... Imagine a Dune poster with that pull quote at the top of it. Quote, the film was made. End quote. That, I would... Someone... Get me the poster for Madam Web, and on the top of it, write, quote, the film was made. That's, that's your Photoshop project of the week. <laughs> We've gone through a number of the reviews. Uh, we'll, we'll end our, our deep dive, deeper than I wanted to, in 1984's Dune on this note. Um, the original, uh, one of the prior producers to the movie, Jodorowsky, uh, when this movie came out, he just couldn't bring himself to see it. He had worked so hard for so long to try and get it made into a movie, and he just wasn't willing to go see it. His sons came to him, and they said, Dad, we think you should really go see this. And he, he ultimately agreed. He sits down. He goes to the movies. As the film unfolded, Jodorowsky says he became very happy seeing that the movie was a failure. But he also added, That was the producer's fault, not David Lynch's fault. So he goes to the movies and he goes, I could have done better, which, ah, we love a petty man, don't we? We we love a petty, petty man. That's right. Uh, So that ends our look at David Lynch's Dune from 1984. We uh, transition seamlessly into... 2021's Dune. We go to the basics, the plot as described from uh, the fine folks at the Internet Movie Database reads as follows. A noble family becomes embroiled in a war for control over the galaxy's most valuable asset while its heir becomes troubled by visions of a dark future. That's a better logline. That seems to be a little more on the nose for what is happening in the movie Dune. Uh, it stars Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Josh Brolin, Rebecca Ferguson, Jason Momoa, quite the ens- Dave Bautista, quite the ensemble cast for Dune. I'm going to go ahead and call it part one because it, dis- it differentiates itself from David Lynch's movie, and it also differentiates itself from the recently released Dune part two. So when I say Dune part one, You all know what I'm talking about. I didn't need to explain it to you, but I did. It's probably why this podcast is so damn long. Directed by, again, I call him Dennis Villanueva. It's not Dennis, but 
it's quicker. Uh, he directed uh, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. Kind of ironic that, again, Blade Runner shows up in the making of Dune. And Sicario received a Best Director nomination for Arrival in 2017. Um, Arrival is a movie I popped in. Uh, in December, I do this thing where I just watch as much as possible from that year basically just padding stats right like just okay let me let me bang a few out if, if you know it then i can tell people i reviewed 100 movies like i i didn't need to but you know we'll we'll turn a few things on so i put in arrival not expecting much i, I had heard good things so it's like okay this this could be good maybe maybe i'll watch it maybe it'll maybe it'll be worthwhile my favorite movie of that year just blew me away couldn't couldn't say enough good things about it. Couldn't tell enough people to go watch Arrival. And it just leaps and bounds. Number one movie of the year for me uh, in was 2016 or 2017. Uh, I, 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 for, I forget at this point. But um, look at Dennis's <laughs> uh, IMDb page, his, his resume, uh, Prisoners with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman. He did another Little movie with Jake Gyllenhaal called Enemy. Very good. He is in the midst of a run that, I mean, we in 20 years we could look back and go, wow, that guy had it going, and he had it going for a long, long time. Uh, Dennis do- doesn't get the credit he deserves, probably like podcasters, not saying his name correctly, but like actual praise from actual people who matter. I don't think he really gets his due. Uh, if you remember the world in 2021, people were still a little scared to go to the movie theater, but, uh, Dune was in movie theaters. We'll get to where else it was and where you probably saw it first in just a minute. But, uh, Dune made $108 million domestically. It was in theaters for 24 weekends. It debuted at number one, earning $41 million. It knocked out Halloween kills from the top spot. This is October 22nd so it's late october 2021 hence halloween uh so this movie will turn three this year we don't normally do a movie this new but that's kind of fun it stayed number one for two weekends it was knocked out by the single worst marvel movie in existence eternals my god don't give me a chance to talk about eternals because you'll never shut me up it's it it killed the marvel cinematic universe in more ways than one. Uh, the reviews were uh, astoundingly positive. 83% of critics loved it. 90% of audiences liked it. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes critics consensus reads as follows. Dune occasionally struggles with its unwieldy source material, but those issues are largely overshadowed by the scope and ambition of this visually thrilling adaptation. I will say that's dead on. That's a dead on analysis of this movie. It struggles telling its story, but it tells it better than the David Lynch version. And it gives you more big action movie, sci-fi movie type scenes to kind of shut you up and like, hey, shut up. Watch this thing explode. You don't care what's happening. Uh, IMDb 8 out of 10, just outside the top 250 on IMDb all time. Metacritic gave it 74 out of 100. Cinema score Gave it an A minus. Pretty darn good reviews for the 2021 version of 
Dune. Also, in between David Lynch's version and uh, this version, uh, there was a 2000 miniseries on Sci-Fi Channel where they, they tried to get Dune off the ground one more time. Uh, we'll, we'll, in 1996, producer Richard P. Rubenstein, uh, this is the guy who produced uh, Dawn of the Dead. He's done eight different Stephen King adaptations. I'm trying to remember some of them. Uh, the Stand, Thinner, not the best Stephen King movie, but uh, it has its moments, uh, among many others. Uh, Pet Cemetery. he pr- produced a lot of Stephen King works in the movies. Uh, he, he does a live action, produces a live action miniseries. It was directed by John Harrison. It's called Frank Herbert's Dune. It aired on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2000. Big ratings hit for the channel. Uh, better received than the, than the David Lynch version. I haven't seen it. I don't know where to find it. Like, I don't think it's on the Sci-Fi app or... Uh, let's see, that would be an NBC offshoot. So like, I don't think it's on Peacock or anything like that, but it would be interesting to dig that up. Um, I haven't even looked, maybe it's readily available and I just don't know it, uh, before I came into the booth here to make this, but between that mini series of Dune and the 2021 version of Dune, hearts and minds changed about the quote unquote unfilmable nature of of Dune. Lord of the Rings was wildly successful. The Harry Potter franchise was wildly successful. And it made people think, hmm, maybe this thing that was once thought to be unfilmable is now filmable. Let's film it. Uh, production contracts secured for the first film only. They told everyone involved, you got to hit it out of the park if you want to make a sequel. Which makes the ending of Dune Part 1, that much more astounding. What if this movie bombed and it just ended on a cliffhanger? Um, bold move. Bold move. Uh, maybe you remember what happened in the year of our Lord 2021, as I said. Uh, the movie was delayed due to COVID. It was supposed to come out in 2020. They pushed it back several times. I think we'll get into that here a little later, but Let's talk about the good stuff first. Six awards it won at the Academy Awards, nominated in four other categories, including Best Picture. That's where you want to be nominated if you are a movie. If you're a movie, why are you listening to this podcast, though? Um, So uh, Villanueva, he had expressed his interest in the project in 2016, and he said, it's always been a dream of mine to make Dune into a movie, but it's a long process to get the rights, and I don't think I will succeed. His enthusiasm to direct the movie earned the 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 people who currently held the rights to the book earned their respect just by saying that out of the blue in an interview one day. And they call him up, and they quickly hired him. Hey, you, you want to make Dune? We own Dune. You can make Dune for us. He says, okay, but I got to finish my other movies first. He does Arrival. He does Blade Runner 2049 uh, so he can spend maximum amount of time perfecting the script and the production. Uh, Villanueva had desired an actor who had an old soul in the body of a teenager and identified Timothy Chalamet as the ideal choice for that role. Uh, Later on the press tour for the first movie, he would admit he had no other choices in mind. He had no number two. He did not have a backup plan. 
if Timothy Chalamet was busy or said no. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson plays uh, Paul's mom. Paul is, Paul is Timothy Chalamet's character. Rebecca Ferguson plays Lady Jessica. Uh, she was initially not interested in playing a part in Dune. She felt Lady Jessica had been too similar to the character she played in Miss, Mission Impossible. And she did not want to be typecast as a strong female character, which I understand you don't want to go to work and do the same thing every day, but what a great thing to be typecast as is, hey, you're a strong female character. Like I, so I, I don't, I would push back on that idea a little bit, but I'm not Rebecca Ferguson, if you haven't noticed. Uh, Zendaya, she auditioned for the role uh, alongside five other actresses. I would love to know the other five. I don't, but ah, gosh, I'd love to. This was before work started on the HBO show Euphoria. Uh, she was chosen for the role because she had the best chemistry with Timothy Chalamet. Josh Brolin tell, tells an amusing anecdote where he says, yeah, I pretended to read the script. And then they, uh, and then I said yes to the role. So they offered it to him and he said, yeah, let me read the script first. And he did not read the script and said yes. So he was very excited to be a part of the Dune universe. And he's very good in it. So it worked out. Uh, we used a lot of practical sets on sound stages and backlots in Budapest, which serves as the interior for three planets. The uh, And, of course, Dune, one of the biggest things in Dune is kind of the sandworms. The sandworms are kind of the drawing thing. That's the big thing on the Internet right now is, oh, have you seen the popcorn tub that looks like a sandworm? You reach your hand in the sandworm's mouth. And let me tell you, great bit. By AMC. Love that. You're going to get a ton of nerds seeing Dune at your theaters just to get that popcorn tub. I would never go to a movie because the popcorn tub is really cool. But if you do, that's cool. Also, look, this is a podcast. This isn't the radio. I, I don't have to adhere to moral standards or FCC clauses. You know what nerds are putting in that popcorn tub, and it ain't their hand, okay? Yeah, now you're following me. Now you're following me. Uh, the original design for the sandworm was deemed prehistoric. Like we gotta, we gotta make this look like a prehistoric animal. It was inspired uh, by whales. The skin texture is actually tree bark and mud. Um, they spoke of the challenges involved in creating the set for the sandworms. They said it is a creature that commands respect. It's almost seen as a deity in the world of the Fremen. The Fremen are a race of people in the movie Dune, if you haven't seen it. Uh, and these big, giant sandworms think tremors with Kevin Bacon, if you haven't seen Dune. But if you haven't seen Dune, why are you like an hour into a podcast about Dune? I, maybe you're just like me, and God love you if you do. But hey, I mean, there's other podcasts out there. Uh, the character commands respect. That's why the first time you see a sandworm in the movie, it is on the mural and you see the sun coming out of its mouth. So th th there's sort of a visual clue there. Like, okay, this is something not to be trifled with. Um, Oscar Isaac plays Timothy Chalamet's character's father. And uh, one of the, the, the spoiler alert for Dune Part 1, if you haven't seen it, I just critiqued you. You probably turned it off because, like, hey, I don't need the podcaster critiquing me. Well, now maybe you need to turn it off because I'm about to spoil Dune Part 1 for you. 
Oscar Isaac's final scene, uh, he eventually decided to film it without clothes on as he felt it was similar to Christ's crucifixion, which, yeah, there's sort of that uh, father sacrifices himself for the son, the son rises up and becomes the savior for a whole people sort of thing going on there. So it it, it makes sense. Uh, the sandworms in this movie were CGI, obviously, but uh, the visual effects team found a lot of difficulty in deciding how they would move. The team spent over a year figuring out how the sandworms would move and researched body movements of various animals. The sand ripples created by the worms were inspired by Jaws. So uh, add another one to the legacy of Jaws. It has a number... A thousand different offshoots for the movie Jaws and its effect, impact on movie history, and, and that's another small one. Um, as I said, Dune, originally scheduled to be released November 20th, 2020. Pushed back to December 18th, 2020. Eh, COVID wasn't really wrapping up in a timely manner, so they pushed it back almost a whole year, October 1st, 2021, taking over the release date of The Batman. Late June 2021, Warner Brothers delayed the film's American release again to October 22nd to avoid competition with the James Bond movie No Time to Die. If you remember, MGM was a company that was failing. It was literally on its last legs, and they said, we cannot wait for COVID to be over. It may never be over. We're releasing No Time to Die. And they did, and MGM still went belly up. I, I I don't know if that's the right term. Amazon bought it and, and now owns MGM over a month before the domestic North American release date. Uh, it, it staggered its release among a number of international markets. If you remember, uh, if you live online, you remember a bunch of people saying, gosh, every other country gets to see Dune before America. What's up with that? Uh, Warner brothers announced that it would also premiere on HBO Max at the same time as it was in theaters. Remember, every movie that came out in 2021 from Warner Brothers, HBO Max, the same day as it was released, it would be on HBO Max for 30 days. And now, Max is HBO Max. Um, movie goes on to be the best, uh, quote-unquote, pandemic-era movie for Warner Brothers it beats Godzilla versus Kong in uh, a number of metrics. Uh, it's also the best opening of Villanueva's career. Uh, th they don't really release streaming numbers for movies, but they did when they do when they're successful. And we have these for Dune on HBO Max. It was watched 1.9, not times. It was watched in over 1.9 million households during its first three days of release, 2.3 million within its first week of release, 3.9 million U.S. households watched the film in that 30-day run on HBO Max. It was the ninth most streamed film of 2021, and it came out in late October, so that's pretty good, right? I mean, for, for a streaming movie, you got to be pleased with that success. Uh, getting in into the review, well... One more note on the on the streaming aspect of this movie. Warner Brothers assured 
uh, Dennis, who was very unhappy that the movie was also on streaming because he's a director and directors are always like, oh, no, you need to go to the theater. You need to see it on the big screen, the biggest screen possible. I shot this in IMAX. You could go to an IMAX and see it. Now, they, they genuinely mean that, but also the more money the movie makes, the better they do. So I mean, uh, it can be two things at once. Warner Brothers assured him a sequel would be greenlit as long as the film performed well on HBO Max. They were more concerned about that than the theatrical aspect. However much money it made was however much money it made. As long as people were watching it and liking it, they would make another one. Again, this movie ends on a cliffhanger, so huge roll of the dice by everyone involved. I, I, I haven't really gotten into that enough like I wanted to. Huge roll of the dice by Warner Brothers and uh, Mr. Villanueva. Entertainment Weekly reviewed this film, gave it a B, uh, wrote that Dune had little exposition. I would disagree with that. Uh, it also appreciated the world building and visual aesthetic. However, uh, the reviewer did not appreciate the jokes and felt the script gradually adjusted and soon settles into kind of a grim grandeur, highlighting Chalamet and Isaac's performances. I agree with that. I would also say that that's kind of when the movie starts to get good, right? When things look bleak and everyone has to act sad and dour and, and fight back. That's that's when the movie gets good, right? Uh, critic Owen, Owen Gleiberman, his review in Variety, much more negative. He appreciated the film's extensive focus on world building, but felt it had also undermined the storytelling. He found the title... Dune Part 1 to be presumptuous regarding it to how other film franchises advertise future installments. If you remember, this movie was called Dune. That's all it was called. And then at the end, when it ends on that cliffhanger, it says Dune Part 1. And that's when you go, oh my gosh, they're going to do more of these. This is the first time I've ever heard of that. So it was kind of a mixed bag from the critics. Fans really ended up loving it. Like, I remember I watched it and I said, mm, okay, this is better than David Lynch's version. It's, it certainly looks amazing, but it's still very, very complicated to follow. And it it almost, after about the first 30, 45 minutes, stops caring whether or not you're, you're in on it. It... it it doesn't help you come along with the story in any way. It lays out the story and then says you're with, you, you're either with us or against us at this point and, and just kind of keeps playing. But it was nominated for 10 Oscars. It did win six, a lot of those in below-the-line technical categories. Uh, it won one Golden Globe. It was nominated for three. It also won one Kids' Choice Awards from Nickelodeon. Uh, I haven't looked up which one that is, but... It, I assume it's from Timothy Chalamet or Zendaya. I'm not, I'm not sure which. It was also one of the top 10 films from the American Film Institute in 2021. I gave it three stars on my initial watch. My year-end list had it at number 54 for the year 2021. I would re-rank it a little bit higher than that, but only like 40th. Like... It, I, again, I have a really complicated relationship with these movies because I think they're technical achievements, but the story is, it's not easy to follow. It, it, like I said, it almost doesn't care 
whether or not you're you're in on this. It, which I guess indicates that it's a more intelligent blockbuster, which is something I've always wanted. Right? It's something I've always I've always clamored for, and and then I get it, and I don't like it. So I don't know it. They're very good. I think part of the issue with Dune Part One is that it ends on that cliffhanger. And I didn't I didn't have the full story. I didn't have the full story. Now I have, I'll say this, more of the story, having seen Dune Part Two. And I I I liked it better this time around. Maybe it's it's definitely one of those movies that rewards rewatching because first of all, it's so long. And second of all, it's so I don't want to say complicated, but that's the easiest word to use when describing the plot of Dune. It, it's complicated. That and again, I'll say it. I'm I'm an old man. I'm a big dum dum. It's hard for me to follow Dune. I I don't think that's such a hot take that it's hard to follow Dune. You can follow it. It is followable, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to follow. Um, my best part of this movie is the initial reveal of the sandworms kind of a weird spot to go, but it kind of teases it in a couple of scenes. And then finally there's a sandworm that shoots out of the sand and uh, attacks. And it's this big moment that we've been building to throughout the movie. It's one of the rare moments where the movie is sort of fun, I guess Um, the unsung hero of the movie. I'm going to give that award to Oscar Isaac. I think his performance is really grounded. It's it's really about a father trying to train his son for his death, right? It it it's very much a Mufasa Simba relationship. It's very much, "Hey, hey, kid, kid, stop being a kid. You need to know these things cuz I'm going to die someday." And oh my gosh, turns out that's sooner rather than later. It it, it makes a lot of sense. And it works. He gives a, a a very good performance in this movie. In a movie full of, of a lot of people acting with a capital A. Because this movie allows you to kind of get weird with your character. Make weird choices if you're an actor. Certainly the costumes and the makeup allow for weird roles. And I think Oscar Isaac does a very great job in that role here in Dune Part 1. We move on to Dune Part 2. This is going to be much shorter because it's a newer movie. We don't have a lot of reviews or box office numbers or secrets from the making of the movie. So this will be quicker, I promise. Dune Part 2 just came out this past weekend. I saw it Thursday night. Cheap plug for where I saw it. Uh, ACX Cinemas in Elkhorn. They got that big screen. I, I think they, ad- forgive me, I don't have the facts in front of me. I believe they advertise it as like the largest non-IMAX screen in town. I think it's 70 inches, seven feet tall, seven stories tall, something like that. It's a huge screen. It's crystal clear. I would recommend seeing the movie there. Or if you're an I, I'm not an IMAX person. So like, I don't need to go see the movie at IMAX. It, it doesn't do much for me. So I like ACX out there. They do a good job. And uh, it's not the most crowded theater in the world. I, I I don't like crowds, even though the paparazzi found me when I was seeing Dune Part 2 on Thursday night. I, I don't like that. Uh, the plot reads as follows. Again, thanks to the fine folks at the Internet Movie Database, imdb.com. Paul Atreides unites with 
Zendaya. I don't know her character's name. I'm sorry. We're, we're a couple movies in. I don't know her character's name. I'm not going to learn her character's name. I don't know anyone's name in this movie. I know Paul. Timothy Chalamet is Paul. Uh, unites with Zendaya and the Fremen while seeking revenge against the conspirators who destroyed his family. I can confirm that is the plot of Dune Part 2. Uh, again, directed by Dennis Villanueva. I, again, Americanize his name. I butcher it. That's right. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of box office receipts for this yet. Uh, the pre-sales outpaced Oppenheimer, so they're very, very pleased with how this movie is doing. Uh, the reviews are even better than the first one. Um 94% from critics on the tomato meter, 95% from audiences. The consensus, visually thrilling and narratively epic, Dune Part 2 continues Villanueva's adaptation of the beloved sci-fi series in a spectacular form. Uh, before uh, the movie was made, there was a key point of negotiation between Dennis and Warner Brothers. Uh, assuring that the sequel would have an exclusive window where it would be shown theatrically. He was, again, unpleased about the simultaneous theatrical and streaming premiere of Dune Part 1. So everybody got together. They said, 45-day window, that's the that's the biggest window we have in movies nowadays. Uh, it, it'll be in theaters for 45 days all by itself, and then... We'll go to, uh, you can rent it, you can, you can buy the physical copy later. Uh, he's, the director, Dennis, said this was a non-negotiable condition with making the second movie. Uh, it brings in new members of the cast, including, if you listen to the Connor Happer show, uh, one of our favorite actors in the whole entire world, Austin Butler. Oh, I'm an alien. Oh, I can't stop being an Elvis alien. Uh, <laughs> He's in this movie. He actually does a very good job. We make fun of Austin Butler on the show, but it's ridiculous to say that you did not know how to stop being Elvis. It's one of the more ridiculous things I've ever heard anyone say in the history of my life, nearly four decades on this planet. Uh, he, Austin Butler was given the role without needing to audition. He trained for four months in Budapest using a fitness regimen made by an ex-Navy SEAL member. This is, again, Austin Butler going, I, you can look at it as a positive, but I look at it as uh, material for mockery. Uh, he just goes way above what is required for the role, which, again, should directors probably look at that as a good thing. Uh, hacks like me look at it and go, dude, you're trying too hard. You're try-hard. Austin Butler, officially a try-hard. Uh, Florence Pugh is in this because it's a movie and she's required to be in literally every single movie that comes out right now. Now, if you remember just mere minutes ago, I told you that Dune one, Dune part one was pushed back several times due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which makes what I'm about to read all the more amazing. Dune part two originally scheduled for release in October 20th, 2023, but was delayed to November 17th before moving forward two weeks to November 3rd to adjust to changes in its release schedule from other studios. So it moved around like movies don't like to compete with each other. There's not enough movies to where like we don't have to do Barbenheimer every weekend, like in the nineties that like Barbenheimer was a regular occurrence in the nineties, but 
you know, now there's not enough good movies. Like, we don't have to fight. There's enough room for both of us. Let's find room on the calendar. But then it was postponed four months to March due to the Hollywood labor disputes. And after those were resolved, uh, they tweaked it, moved it up to this weekend. So every time Dune has been on the release schedule, it has been moved drastically due to tragic world events. So, I mean, I mean, that's you. You can't write comedy like that. Um, I have seen it. I don't want to spoil anything. It's pretty darn great. Um, the best part for me in this movie, the last scene, the last thirty minutes of the movie. It's kind of it's it's all pointing to this big confrontation, and it it. it it brings all the characters together. You get a lot of actors interacting with other actors. And this movie has an amazing ensemble and you get to see great actors going up with great actors. And it, it, it's terrific. Uh, a lot of tension, a lot of action, a lot of drama. The whole thing just worked for me. Um, the legacy of this movie. I don't know what the legacy of this movie is. I think it's going to be pretty great. It's getting rave, rave, rave reviews. I didn't like it. That much. I give it four stars out of five. I will say it is one of the best looking movies I have ever seen in my life. This movie is without a shadow of a doubt, a technical achievement. It looks marvelous. So again, I urge you to see it on the biggest and best screen possible. I know a lot of people like, I'll just wait. I'll wait. It's fine. I'll wait. And maybe you go out to the movie theater and you see it. Um, it 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 looks terrific. The story, since it built its world in the previous movie, it can relax a little bit in this. It's still there's still a lot going on, but it's a two hour and forty five minute movie, so it manages to stretch it out a lot better. Um, I will say that there are hills and valleys. In this movie, there's at times a lot going on, and at times it seems absolutely nothing going on. So it's not perfect. A lot of people are saying that this is a masterpiece and one of the best movies in the history of the genre. I'm not going to go that far. Maybe with time we'll get there. Maybe with repeated viewings we can get there. I just, I'm not ready to rule on that yet. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be prisoner of the moment with this thing. Timothy Chalamet gives a great performance in this. He is tasked with rising up and leading a race of people. And you get to see him do some things that quite frankly, a man with that body type doesn't get to do. Normally he he's a twig boy. He's a twig boy. Then no other way around it. Timothy Chalamet is a tiny baby actor. Javier Bardem is really, really good in this. Um, he is sort of a, a, a military head for uh, the, the Fremen race of people. And he he just gets to be a, a brooding badass through all of it. Um, Stellan Skarsgård, great work as the villainous Baron in this movie. A um, lot of effects work, a lot of, I call it face acting, where like your body is hindered by other things. And this in, the, in his case, it's hindered by a fat suit, uh, among other things. Uh, and he... Gets to emote a lot. I guess people, instead of face acting, would use like a real word, like emote. He gets to do that. He's one of my unsung heroes in this movie, along with Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Lady Jessica. She didn't want to do these movies because she didn't want to be typecast as a strong female character. She's a super badass in this movie. 
um, and she's whole, she's carrying the character is carrying a child throughout the movie. Um, you see her at the end of the first movie. Um, her son goes away to fight a war. Her husband has just died. She has this baby. She's not sure. Like, what do what what do I do? What is my life now? And she finds herself in Dune Part Two. If you liked the the first Dune, obviously you should go see this movie. Um, few other ones. Uh, I'm gonna go Game of Thrones because it has that house of these these rival houses. Um, you know, alliances, twists, turns, screw jobs. In the movie, it reminds me a lot of Game of Thrones. I don't like to throw TV shows into here, but that's something if I say to you the plot is similar to Game of Thrones, it kind of hits a light bulb for a lot of people. And I guess the third one I will say is, um, oh gosh, I, I should have been better prepared. Empire Strikes Back comes to mind, but it's not entirely that, uh, but it is a great second chapter of a movie series. Like, let's let's not spoil it for everybody on a sale, scale of see it, stream it, or skip it. That's how I like to review new movies around here. I'm going to give it a pretty solid see it. Um, obviously, it's a sequel. If you haven't seen the first one, like, don't go into this cold. You'll probably be very, very lost because it's easy to get lost in the plot of Dune to begin with. Um I, I, again, I didn't love any of the previous versions of this movie franchise, and I really, really liked Dune Part 2. I imagine watching it again, it'll grow on me in, into something that I, I could potentially love in 5, 10, 20 years down the line. Uh, but again, it is two hours and 45 minutes, so it, it is a bit of a commitment. I think it's worth it. Um, obviously, if you saw the first one and you loved it, People are raving about it. You'll, if if you loved the first one, again, I think this is a better movie than the first one. So it, it, it's just going to ramp up from here. The excitement for this franchise. Um, it would be interesting to see what happened if this had been in its original release spot and how that would impact next week's Academy Awards. I think. Oppenheimer should the folks behind the movie Oppenheimer should send a lot of flowers and uh, edible arrangements to the folks who made Dune, the folks at Warner Brothers who moved Dune back uh, to 2024 because Oppenheimer's going to clean up at the Oscars this weekend and they have Dune getting out of the way to thank for that. Um, a lot of the technical awards would have went to Dune Part 2 because again, this is one of the best looking movies I've ever seen. I don't think any actor would have usurped any of the actors who are about to win awards. I don't think it would have won best picture. I do think it would be nominated for best picture. I do think it would be nominated in a lot of categories, but for acting and, and not win. Maybe my good friend, Dennis, whose name I say perfectly every time would have gotten a best director nomination, but I'm not sure that's kind of a stacked category this year. So but it, it it would have dominated the below-the-line technical categories, sound editing, production design, things like that, things that you don't know or care about. Uh, it, it would have cleaned up at the Oscars there, and instead Oppenheimer is going to win a lot of those awards. So Oppenheimer is going to win, like, I don't know, five, six statues uh, here 
in uh, just a little over a week. So that is my review of Dune Part 2, as well as the franchise known as Dune. Uh, Next time out, we will talk about those Oscar uh, ceremonies that are on March 10th. It's a Sunday night on ABC. Jimmy Kimmel back in the saddle to host. I'll give my predictions to who will win. I'll tell you who should win. Uh, sort of did some of this with my favorite movies of the year, but a little more structure here for the Oscar preview show next week on Producer Josh's Film School. Thanks for tuning in again. Social media at Producer Josh on Twitter, at Josh Odson on Instagram. Can't thank you enough for clicking play on this one and bearing with me through uh, the ebbs and flows of this episode. Kind of complicated to put together because it's a complicated franchise to understand. Uh, Had a lot of fun doing it. We'll do it again next week with the Oscar preview show. If you like what we're doing here, tell a friend, share it on social media, and uh, tag me in it at producer underscore Josh. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week on Producer Josh's Film School. 